In this episode, we compare bears to Beetlejuice, some Germans screw in a light bulb, and I talk balls. Welcome to Fax Machine. My name is Rob, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts Noah, hello, and Emily. Hi. And we are the hosts of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. In every episode, each of us shares one fascinating fact, along with the incredible story behind it. And finally, we wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz, loosely inspired by the theme. This week, our theme is etymology, and we'll get down to the root of things quickly and see what conversation stems from that. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get started, I'll remind you that the origin of every podcast is a good idea, and that the life of every podcast depends on reviews. So it would be a good idea to rate and review us on iTunes. You can Woo! also leave us a review telling us what you liked about the episode, and we would absolutely love to hear from you. And we have some exciting news. On Wednesday, March 25th at 9 p.m., we'll be back at Caveat on the Lower East Side of New York for our first live show of 2020 in collaboration with Brain Awareness Week and Come Be Brainy. Appropriately, the theme will be This Is Your Brain on Brains, in which Noah, Emily, and myself will exchange our brain-bound facts with neuroscientist Dr. Paula Croxon of the Zuckerman Institute at Columbia. So go check out our website and find tickets on our Twitter and Instagram at FaxMachinePod. And with that, Noah, take it away. This week I learned that the word oxymoron derives from the Greek words oxy, meaning sharp, and moron, meaning dull. Hence, the word oxymoron is an oxymoron. Hmm. Fitting. Yeah, very cool, right? I like it. So the first ever known usage of the term oxymoron in any language is from the late 4th, uh, early 5th century uh, CE grammarian Morris Servius Honoratus, who included the term in a commentary on Virgil's Aeneid, and his word oxymorum basically is derived from the Greek oxus, you know, as I said, means sharp or keen, uh, and also moros, meaning dull or stupid. Uh, as it were, the words basically mean sharp, dull, or keenly stupid, the implication <laughs> being this is a paradox, right? Now, I've taken it for granted that basically everyone knows exactly what an oxymoron is here, um, but I found in researching it that I didn't 100% know precisely what the definition of oxymoron is. Um, and I would have said uh, an oxymoron is just a, a contradiction in terms or some word or phrase that is paradoxical in some way. And this definition was in wide enough usage by the turn of the 20th century uh, that it was included, I think, in 1902 in the Oxford English Dictionary with that meaning of just in a general sense, a term that is a contradiction. Hmm. Um, but apparently, I found out, uh, a pedant could point out that an oxymoron is technically a self-contradiction that is used deliberately to illustrate a rhetorical point or to reveal a paradox. So it's basically this mm. literary device that's used for the purpose of like of of making the point that this contradiction is important somehow in in the rhetoric. Oh, that's so interesting okay. that that the intention matters mm -hmm. because then it would be really hard to identify oxymorons in text <laughs> if you don't know the author's <laughs> intentions. Exactly. But through the ages, it's actually been a very common literary device. So one of my favorites uh, is in Shakespeare and um, uh, Romeo and Juliet, 
where he strings together 13 oxymorons in a row. <laughs> uh, and it's actually an act one, scene one. Um, and it's, yeah. it's, oh, brawling love, oh, loving hate. Oh, anything of nothing, first create. Oh, heavy lightness, serious vanity. Misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms. That's a nice one. That's Ooh, a little compound. Okay, okay. Feather of lead, bright smoke, cold fire, sick health. Still waking sleep that is not what it is. This love I feel that feel no love in this. So he just went absolutely insane. And there's wow. a ton more like really, really amazing examples of oxymoron in Shakespeare, okay. as well as many, many other authors. Also, um, foreshadowing <laughs> of still waking sleep. That is mm-hmm. not what it seems. Isn't that great? Ooh. Ooh. Oh, he's, dang. He's, I didn't even think about that. that. He was, was kind of good at that. He was kind of good at that. I know. That's a tough um, rule to apply, because you might also then assume Romeo and Juliet is all about lead feathers. <laughs> 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 I mean, Yeah. <laughs> Like, which one is it? Oh, I really, I do really like uh, misshapen chaos of well-seeming forms because it's like I think that that's sort of a sandwiched one where it's misshapen and forms and like chaos and well-seeming. So it's like maybe the 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 left sort of the left edges, right, the, the extremes versus the means here. The extremes are like you know bad shape, and the other side is form. And then the middle is like chaos versus well-seeming sort of ordered is how I, I read yeah. it. So that's yeah. really, really cool. So some other really good ones from Romeo and Juliet. Uh, beautiful tyrant, fiend angelical, dove feathered raven. Hmm. I, okay. okay. <laughs> I think it's sort of okay. more about like the color basically. Um, and what it, what it implies, like a dove's feathers, you know, it's a nice thing. Ravens are like, ah, scary, a murder. Of crows, I guess. But is that like a, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing? <laughs> yeah, I guess that would... I'm, I'm just, maybe that is it. Or is uh, it like a silver fox? It's, it's interesting you say that because the next one is wolvish ravening lamb. Oh, oh okay. Okay. Um, and then the, the last one I have here is despised substance of divinest show. Despised Ooh, substance of like divinest show. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is a handle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At... Find us on Instagram. Exactly. At, Honestly. Find us on Instagram at Divine Substance of Divinest Show. Despised, Despised. substance. Oh, fuck. No. <laughs> um, but to get back to oxymoron being in and of itself an oxymoron, this is a type of term known as ostensive definition. That is a term that conveys its own meaning as an example of its meaning. Now, this really only works if you understand the example. So as I think about it now, it's probably fair to say that oxymoron is no longer a very good example of ostensive definition, unless you know the etymology, which of course, now you do. Um, But you know, before learning it, you can't actually understand what the word means from just reading it because it's in Greek, right? Mm. But mm-hmm. when it was first used, presumably, this this would have been a great case of that. And certainly, once you know the etymology, it's like, oh, yeah, it's... <laughs> so you hear the word, you got to look up the etymology, just like all my <laughs> teachers in elementary school wanted me to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then you learn that, that cool fact. I think that's great. Um, but ostensive definitions are often a source of what are known as autological words, okay? And that mm. is a word that describes itself, such as the word short, which is, in fact, a short word, or the word mm. pentasyllabic, which does, in fact, have five, five syllables, syllables, right? Oh, very nice. So autological words are contrasted with heterological words, which do not describe themselves. For example, the word long is not a long word, and the word monosyllabic has more than one syllable, syllable, right? Mm-hmm. Bored yet? Um, <laughs> so honestly, this is not really very important. Um, it's 
mostly just fun to point out when words work like this. And if, you know, personally, if I were tasked with coining words or making a language, I would certainly try to come up with words that worked like that because I think it's just an awesome device to make, you know, dictionaries obsolete. If all the words are obvious what they mean by exactly how they sound, that would be awesome and it'd be much easier to learn languages that way. But Mm -hmm. the discussion about which words are autological and which words are heterological has actually been sort of important in the fields of logic and philosophy. So... Allow me to introduce you to the Grelling-Nelson Paradox. Mm. Okay. Yes. It took two entire German philosophers to describe this one. (laughs) Um, Yes. So these two German philosophers, Grelling and Nelson, they described this paradox. And the paradox is essentially summed up by the question, is the word heterological heterological? Ooh. Right? That is, does the adjective heterological, meaning does not describe itself, describe itself? That is my question to you. Emily and Rob, please discuss. Interesting. All right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in the Greek roots, it's very literal. Does it not is. describe or like describes not itself. Descri- the word is not of its own meaning. Right. But that is what it means. Yeah. So, mm. but if it is autological, then it does not describe right. itself. So it, it can't like. In Can it be right. both? Right. So that's no. the. Why not? By definition, <laughs> it can't. Well, that's right. That's the issue. Like, it, yeah. Its translation indicates that it would be autological, but its meaning that it is antithetical to autological means that it has to be heterological, even though it means itself. This exact discussion is why we make Germans do this kind of philosophy. <laughs> um, it makes much more sense than the original German. <laughs> is, isn't, like, most words in German are autological? Oh, I didn't know that. No, no, no. I'm mean, because like they are they're just strung together I, bits of shorter words. Yeah, exactly. No, so well, they may be ostensive definitions. Oh, so yes. No, you're right. You're right. Aren't I don't think I don't think they're necessarily autological, but they are like a very a lot of the autological words are ostensive definitions because I'm mm. not really sure. <laughs> Honestly, I, I read basically that a source of many autological words is ostensive definitions. So maybe they. Yeah, if they describe themselves, that yeah, okay, of course. So, yeah, that means. See, this is again why we make the Germans do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, ostensive definitions, I guess, must be autological. That's yeah. Well, no. When you when you mention both terms, I was. Can you repeat the be- definition? Because that like, you gave? if you if you have a word like hamburger, it doesn't really describe itself. Um, well, it actually, in fact, completely fails to describe itself because burgers aren't made out of ham. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's a bad example. Although, actually, hamburger is just someone from Hamburg, right? Yes. So it kind of does. Or does it? What do you, I don't know. What do you have in your hamburgers? <laughs> just, <laughs> this is, um, have you read the novel Perfume? Where it's that German guy who like grinds no, up people. No, but I, yeah, I know the premise. Well, he grinds up people and puts them in perfume. Hence the title of the book. Sure. But I, I feel like people grinding up people... And then putting, selling them in like meat shops is a very common premise. Yeah, Yeah. Saint Saint Nicholas. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Um, Yeah, that's right. We we talked about in our. No, it was a Christmas episode. (laughs) Uh, We talked about the history of children. (laughs) Of how uh, Saint Nicholas's miracle was resurrecting children who had been pickled um, Mm. by (laughs) an unscrupulous, unscrupled, unscrupulous butcher. Um, yeah. Anyway, mm, um, so right, you guys, you know, were tasked with determining whether or not heterological was in fact heterological. But can I ask, what was your final? Did we reach a consensus? Fa- failure and despair, I would say. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like so, most philosophical. So let's studies. just yeah. work out the way they show that this is 
a paradox that's you know, basically impossible to work out. So if you say no, heterological is not heterological, then heterological is autological. Therefore, heterological describes itself. Therefore, heterological is heterological, which is a contradiction. Mm. Meanwhile, if you say yes, heterological is heterological, then heterological does not describe itself. And heterological is not heterological, which is also a contradiction. Yes. Right? So these things are just the the sort of flowchart that these uh, two German philosophers sketched out. Um, and it's just kind of describing how this can happen in language, right? So now that we've learned a little bit about autological and heterological, here's one for you guys to mull over. Is the word loud autological when spoken loudly and heterological when spoken softly? Ooh. Oh, I like that. Okay. I th- okay, I think no, because it should be an inherent value of the word, like of the yeah, written word. the word's definition doesn't change with its volume. Interesting. Okay, so that was the view of uh, some uh, like linguists and philosophers that, that basically dipped into what's known as a, a type versus a token. So the type mm-hmm. of word is what should be considered here, not the token, i.e. the sort of particular instantiation of its use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that people thought that they kind of settled that, right? So, but basically this example was used to show that some adjectives cannot be unambiguously autological or heterological, right? You have to like come up with other explanations of how uh, to like support their, you know, definite uh, belonging to one category or another. But also whether a word is autological can change over time. For example, the word neologism, meaning a relatively oh. newly coined word or term, mm-hmm. was autological when it was first coined. And since this is an etymology episode, I should note that neologism was first borrowed into English from French, neologisme, <laughs> in 1772. Okay. You sound like Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Be our guest, coin some words. <laughs> put, our, put our French words to the test. <laughs> Um, But neologism has since become heterological because it is old AF. Um, But just to one-up, the coiner of neologism, literary theorist Michael Epstein coined the word protologism, which means a new word which has not gained wide acceptance in the language. Protologism will be autological, provided that it never gains widespread use. Huh. Right? And this is the real reason that I have led you through this slog, through topics in linguistics and philosophy that I have been led to believe not even linguists or philosophers think is important. I am announcing here that Fax Machine is going to lead the charge to make protologism a heterological word. It will be slyly edited into all of our podcast episodes. It will be pointlessly hashtagged in tweets to increase circulation. Anytime we write trivia for live events, we will include the term protologism in a question or answer. We will put up flyers all over Manhattan and maybe even Brooklyn if we feel like schlepping all the way over there. In fact, Rob and Emily have both agreed to go with me to get tattoos of the word protologism after this recording. And we need your... Shh, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> and, and we need your help. We're calling on all of you, our faithful fax machine listeners, maybe you're called machinists or something, I don't know, we haven't decided yet, to tweet hashtag protologism and tell all your friends and followers to retweet as well so we can make hashtag protologism trending. We're going to do all that we can and more to make protologism heterological. Or maybe we'll just leave it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. The buildup there was intense. (laughs) And we will go to the moon... And we will write in the cheese. And we will do the other things. Protologism. <laughs> That's the kind of Not editing I'm going to do on YouTube easy, videos. But because they're protologisms. <laughs> I'm actually extremely into this. <laughs> this is a day that will live in protologisms. 
<laughs> to be or not to protologism. <laughs> Why did I do that in like the Winston Churchill? Like we will fight them I, on the protologisms <laughs> and in the protologisms. Because we did Kennedy and FDR. <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> we will do the things the that are protologisms. I kind of had to do the hard to finish that Kennedy accent, but I went yeah. with protologism. Yeah. That's how deeply committed I am. <laughs> Can I can I throw out one more Greek word? Sure. Yes. Um, that I think we use um, probably more frequently than oxymoron, but has very similar meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in school years, mm-hmm. um, the sophomore year is is a very similar, possibly oxymoron. Yep. Oh. Because sophos means wisdom, mm-hmm. and like you said, moros me- means like a dullard. Yeah. And so wise oh. idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like we all were twice. <laughs> That's funny. You were a sophomore twice. Well, high school and college. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I repeated Not all of us went to college, standard, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, the third through sixth years of grad school are also sophomore years. <laughs> this week I learned that bear is a euphemism for bear. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. So the etymology for bear, like any creature that's been around for a long time and left an impression on preceding civilizations that have come into contact with it, is complicated. But it's made even more complicated by a characteristic unique to bears that's as true of them today as it was to our ancient ancestors. They're really fucking scary. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) And as a consequence, across cultures and ages, bears have been a linguistic example of taboo avoidance, a term that means that speakers began referring to bears using a term different from the actual word for them in their native language, so as to avoid saying that actual word. And then as this was carried down through generations, the actual word became gradually replaced with the taboo term. And this taboo came from the fact that, we think, people talking about them found them really scary, and that gossiping about them might incur their wrath. Or, possibly, a la Voldemort or Beetlejuice, they believed that saying their name would cause them to appear. And they just couldn't wow. bear that. <laughs> they couldn't oh, bear! <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't bear it, yeah. So I will say that uh, terms for bears that did not fall to this fate in terms of being kind of tabooed out of memory uh, were those used by the Greeks and Romans, which we still know nowadays because they feature in a lot of modern words that we use. In particular, the Greek and Latin names for bears manifest where you'd expect nowadays in sciency things. Yeah. So we get the Ursa and constellations Ursa Major and Ursa Minor from the Latin for bear, uh, more specifically she-bear, he-bear was Ursus, and she-bear was Ursa. So they're both she-bears. And actually, the Arctic, uh, in the Arctic and Antarctic, come from Arcus, the Greek term for bear. Really? Oh, Um, because isn't, um, I think it's grizzly bear. Isn't that like Ursus Arcturus or something? Arcus bear bear. So, well, brown bear is, Mm. yeah, is bear bear. Is that that bear bear? (laughs) Yeah, it translates to bear bear. So, although the Greeks and Romans were apparently impervious to the terror of summoning a monster that weighs hundreds of pounds and can run at speeds upwards of 35 miles an hour, for context, Usain Bolt at his fastest runs at 27 miles per hour, Mm. Uh, the Proto-Indo-European speakers uh, were more hesitant to call bears by their name. So, an aside on Proto-Indo-European, or PIE, which I just found out about in researching this fact and think it's really cool. So basically, P-I-E, pie, pie yes, <laughs> one of the many pies, um, but yes, P-I-E, um, so if you imagine like an evolutionary lineage of languages, like a, like a phylogenetic tree, mm-hmm. um, or I guess more accurately, a phylogenetic tree. 
<laughs> I did like that, actually. Thank you. <laughs> um, but so imagine a phylogenetic tree where you replace um, all of the kingdoms with various language precursors. So in lieu of plantae and amalia and archaebacteria, you have like Hellenic, Indo-Iranian, and Germanic. Uh, all of these branches of this tree would stem from a single ancestral language or P-I-E, Proto-Indo-European. Oh, like yeah. Luca. What? The last universal common ancestor. Ooh. Whoa. Yes. <laughs> I, I guess so. Cool. Mm. So as a proto-language, which basically just means a precursor to subsequent languages, uh, PIE was arrived at by linguistic reconstruction. So there are no actual written records of it, but just sort of through deduction and kind of tracing one's way back through this lineage of languages, linguists have been able to sort of figure out this kind of common precursor to, like, to all Indo-European languages. So linguistic reconstruction really just sounds like a prose job. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but yeah, so PIE as an actual language was believed to have been spoken between uh, 4500 and 2500 BC. So this spans the late Neolithic period to the Bronze Age. Um, and through successive rounds of Indo-European migration, um, there was this sort of like emergence and divergence of dialects, which then continued to evolve and transform over time into distinct languages. So anyways, although the precise ancestry of our modern English word for bear is appropriately a little fuzzy, we do know that its origins lie in the geographically northern branches of PIE. So the reconstructed PIE root for bear is... Uh, R-T-K-O, or like Artko. Um, so as you see in the Greek, Arctus. Arctic, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's thought that hunting tribes that were speaking, the dialects that would later form Proto-Germanic languages uh, as, a form of tabu- as a form of taboo avoidance, uh, opted to refer to bears by their brown, shiny coats. And so the earliest term that we've traced is the P-I-E root for bright or brown, which hmm. is burr, like burr. B- <laughs> B-H-E-R. Something oh, like cold, that. like the Arctic. What? <laughs> Whoa. Wow. So rather than calling them bears, they probably called them brown things at a minimum. I mean, maybe brown things with big, sharp teeth and oddly specific porch preferences, but <laughs> that would be a bit difficult to extrapolate, I think. So this then evolved to the Proto-Germanic barrow, which translates to the brown one, and then to the Old English, Barra. And then in Middle English and Dutch, you get additional divergences like Bruin, like the Boston Bruins. Um, and through there, we eventually arrive at our modern English, Bear. And I should say, too, that their brown fur wasn't the only descriptor incorporated into taboo avoidance terminology. The Irish, Welsh, Lithuanian, and Russian equivalents of the brown one are the good calf, the honey pig, the liquor, and the honey eater, respectively. Not really sure what was going on with the Lithuanian bears, but <laughs> apparently licking was quite, was a very specific term to them. Wow. Um, so in researching this, I also encountered some other uh, taboo avoidance euphemisms uh, that we commonly use and where they came from. And this is from a Time Magazine interview with Ralph Keyes, who's the author of a book called Euphemania. Um, and actually in this book, he also claims that bear is the oldest known euphemism, which hmm. is intriguing, and that perhaps we were talking about bears before the oldest known profession. Interesting. I don't know. Anyways. So to give a few examples, cemetery was originally a euphemism for graveyard because it's Greek for uh, dormitory or sleeping place Uh and its roots. Uh, Disease uh, was a euphemism for saying someone's sick. Uh, they're not ill, but they are just suffering from disease. Right. Wow. Um, Another one that I found that I enjoyed and figured would be 
appropriate for this crowd. So toilets as johns, right? That's from the 18th century. Um, there was a saying that people were going to see the cousin John when they were using Ooh, the restroom. That's a good one. I'm going to start saying that. But wow. it gets better. My cousin uh, John's going to be really mad at what I'm doing in his house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wouldn't go in there. Cousin John just left now. <laughs> um, was there a bear in here? <laughs> 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 Just tying the whole episode together. Ooh, you could do like a brown bear euphemism type thing. Okay, anyways. Um, but Looks like ex- Papa Bear goes in here. <laughs> Just right. That's the bear cubs. <laughs> a little too much porridge. Drop the, drop the bear cubs off at the stream. <laughs> See, I shouldn't have even told this. I knew this would snowball. But the remainder of this example is that in the early 19th century when john quincy adams was the president um he was also the first president to have an indoor toilet in the white house so at that time people started <laughs> saying i'm going off to visit quincy oh wow. <laughs> that's really good it's pretty great um and also there's another example that i thought was interesting so euphemisms can sometimes happen in the opposite direction as well where you'll have a a term that has just like neutral or good associations, right. but then comes to assume bad or uncouth or salacious associations. Um, and apparently there was a time when occupy uh, was synonymous with having sex. Right. So for a long Ooh. time to occupy meant that. Um, and obviously it doesn't mean that anymore, but it gives oh, like man. the was occupy that... movements a very yeah. different meaning. <laughs> occupy Wall Street. <laughs> right. <laughs> That could be oh, I could be here. That could be a pickup pick line. Like, hey, you wanna, you wanna <laughs> occupy Wall Street? <laughs> Someone's like, yes. <laughs> so this week I learned that the phrase "on the ball" has been around for a little while. Um, cool. Okay. That's, a, that's a ball joke, <laughs> right there. <laughs> Oh, been around. Uh, oh, oh, man. Wow. Oh, I just, wow. I'm so not sorry. I deserve so much. It's like, okay. So this is um, this is what I think is predestination. Uh, but I start. I do the New York crossword every day. New York Times crossword. Look at me. I do the New York crossword. Me, 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 me. How long's your streak? Um, I'm, I rarely finish Fridays or Saturdays. Gotcha. Um, but so, like, one of the first clues I solved today... The, the the clue was on the ball. Oh. Yeah. Knowing that I was recording this tonight, I was like, oh, it knows. <laughs> <laughs> Even um, the New York Times crossword I, is listening to I, us. Um, but so the, the answer, like the, the five letter answer to on the ball, do you guys want to guess what it was? So you mean, so like Wait, the, the clue. What I, what I filled in. Yeah. The clue was on the ball. Oh. Uh, the answer was. Five, how many letters? Five letters. Five. I give you any letter you want. My I was leaning towards like spin like put spin on it but yes. oh so it, there was no question mark so it was not a tricky clue it was literally just like on the ball as it's used as a phrase okay which is actually what ready. we're going to talk about oh ready would be great okay that's five I see, letters I see. yeah okay but it wasn't it started with an a okay i thought this was an interesting take on it aware aware oh yeah. nice so it was aware could have been alert also it was one that i like, was uh, yeah. playing with mm-hmm. so i thought that was really fitting because there are kind of two two meanings or two uses of on the ball right so if you think of a person as being on the ball, you think of them as being kind of reliable. They're ready to go. Um, they are like the, like the person who's on the ball presents themselves um, in, a, in, a, in a way that you trust. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that could be because they are alert and it is because they are in command of their own senses. 
Or it could be because they are timely and they are diligent. Okay. And there's kind of a divergence, or perhaps at this point a convergence, of two separate stories that give us on the ball. And I'd like to give you both of them. Okay. Cool. So this was really interesting to me because I found like a really clear cut, like American reference to where the phrase comes from. And I thought it was very fascinating. And I was convinced that this was the only one. Uh, So I'll tell you that first. In the 1800s in the United States, there was the Ball Watch Company. Um, And it was owned by a guy named W.C. Ball, which if you try to Google, it'll tell you about different World Cup soccer balls. Oh. Ironically. Yeah. Okay. But not what we want here. Uh, But so W.C. Ball... Uh, it stands for Webb Sea Ball, perhaps short for Webster Sea Ball. Uh, perhaps. I don't know. It, <laughs> Wikipedia gave me nothing more. <laughs> but his first name is Webb. Okay. Um, and he, he was a Cleveland, Ohio entrepreneur, and he started the Ball Watch Company. And what he also became um, was the standard for railroads. And so, essentially, before there were railroads in the United States, there was no need for, like, a standardized time across the country. Right. Like, there existed a Greenwich time, which was kind of how, like, time was set for sailors. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was nothing about, like, okay, like, noon in uh, Chicago versus Dallas. Like, so what if it's off by a few minutes? Like, it's just noon. There's no TV. There's no radio. There's no... There's no reason that these cities would be connected by anything at that exact moment. They just know roughly the inclination of the sun. Hmm. Um... So trains were running on these like kind of relative times. And in 1891, there's a head on collision in Kipton, Ohio, that resulted in several deaths. Two trains just smashed into each other because one should have been clear of the track, but it hadn't passed it yet. And the other one was on its way. And it was they, they all thought it was fine because both trains were on time. Right. Um, so this was a this was a big problem. And it kind of led to the investigation. What happened? Well, everyone was in the right as far as they knew. So in order to make trains safer for travelers... Uh, W.C. Ball was designated the chief time inspector for the railroads. And what he did was he made watches. Yep, that's a time. <laughs> Checks out. That's... That is one of the times. That's he... a wonderful title. <laughs> Mr. Time Inspector. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what he did was he, he produced these watches, and they were called RR Standard, which is Railroad Standard, which mm, okay. w- was essentially like his platinum line. Like, these are the best of the best watches. And they endured temperature changes. They endured rain, water, um, heat. Uh, so they put them through this gauntlet to make sure that the watches would read the same no matter what. And so these are some of the things to obtain the standard certification. They had to uh, have no lid on the dial, um, be a size 18 or 16 uh, inches. They had to have a plain white dial, a winding stem at 12 o'clock, uh, have 17 jewels encrusted on it, have a double roller. <laughs> They had to be a lever set watch. Like these are like Why do if, they have to yeah, have the jewels, jewels are a little because guess who is producing the watches? Uh, WC the Ball. guy who was trying to sell them for uh, more money. Exactly. I'm not sure wow. this guy has our <laughs> best interests at heart. You wonder, right? <laughs> yeah. And this was in an age where like these were by the way, this was not government, right? These were railroad barons. Um, but there, there was no, like, government organization necessarily tracking this. This was just train companies saying, like, well, we can't crash all the time. And so <laughs> they hired some guy who's also a businessman. And they were like, yeah, okay, he'll make us watches and we'll not crash our trains. Um, but, but the biggest thing was that these watches couldn't alter by more than 30 seconds in a given week. If you let them go for a week in all kinds of adverse conditions and they were more than 30 seconds apart, didn't pass certification. Uh, and this kept everything running to a very much tighter um, standard. And so engineers would say, oh, like the train is arriving 
um, the train is on the ball. Uh, like we are uh, on the time that we set. Right. And so this cool. is kind of the putative beginning of the American usage of this. And this is probably how it got very widespread through railroads. Now, it may not be the origin. And actually, the origin is a little more contested. Um, and then if you look at a British source, so then I was reading some British websites kind of by accident because I was like, oh, let's just see if they have the same story. No mention of the W.C. Ball Watch Company. Interesting. This one website, which is phrases.org.uk, which is okay. a, a British phrase and idiom website, says that on the, ball is, on the Ball is most closely related to up to scratch, um, meaning like, you know, cuts the mustard. With regards to the similarity to up to scratch, is that just in meaning alone or in origin? Because now I'm thinking they're both uh, related by billiards. Ooh, interesting. Ooh, so, nice. So up to scratch, actually the scratch there is a, is a mark on a running track. And so you're at Just the kidding. starting line. <laughs> so you're up to scratch, meaning I'm ready. Or I'm, see. I'm prepared. Okay. I'm alert. Um, oh, okay. And okay. so on the ball, they, they say has a similar meaning and similar usage. However, it's a little bit harder to say, okay, well, what ball are you perched on top of ready to do something? Um, and so like, there are a lot of theories. Um, so one that was kind of like commonly advocated um is that in greenwich there is something called the greenwich ball which is it was installed in 1833 and it was a timekeeping obelisk or i'm sorry it's a timekeeping monitor kind of like a ball on top of an obelisk and it cast a shadow and it was just like a thing that you could see um and so they, they make the reference on this website that to be on the ball means that your clocks are set to the greenwich time and so sailors and their chronometers would be able to better identify where they were with relation to the stars um, but this website says, don't worry, that's not true at all. Like the okay. ball, the ball in Greenwich has nothing to do with the phrase on the ball. So far as these British folks think, um, their theory is that it is a sporting phrase, um, but it relates to the eyeballs what? and that actually Ew. it is a rounders or for us, baseball related phrase that you want to keep your eye on the ball when you're tracking a pitch or when you're tracking a, a pop fly or any, any sort of fielding, you want to keep your eye on the ball. Meaning that you're ready for, mm-hmm. for should it deviate, should it be hit, should it bounce? Like you're you're tracking the ball. And that is kind of the meaning that they settle on. The English novelist William Kingston wrote Books for Boys in 1864. Um, and <laughs> Books for Boys. Hello, boys. We can't let women read. I was going to say, <laughs> well, there certainly weren't books for girls. I mean, could you imagine? Ugh. And there's... <laughs> Girls would never play baseball. <laughs> Their constitutions are simply too weak. <laughs> um, there's it, a, I actually think this isn't true, but there's this theory that... Uh, not theory. There's this, um, this, this story, at least, about... I think it was like cricket, that women were not allowed to play with the... Because like, the ball used to be red. They weren't allowed to play with the red ball because it would like excite their passions and they would like faint or something. Oh, so they were made to play with blue balls, <laughs> which is which is sort of the punchline of the story. I think it actually is apocryphal, but there is this story. It is a fact that there is that story. Okay. So I'm glad that you all know that as well now. Yes. Yeah, so there we go. If you snuff women's passions, you get blue balls. <laughs> that's a good lesson that's, for that's the, the patriarchy to learn. That. <laughs> But um, so the, the, the evidence they use that, that this is a baseball term is merely um, from William Kingston's 1864 book where he, he talks about Ellis seizing the bat with a convulsive clutch, remembered Ernest's advice, 
kept his eye on the ball and hit it so fairly he sent it flying away to a considerable distance. So the weird thing is, in all of these kind of like these referenced ones, um, they're always referenced with eye on the ball. And so it seems like they're actually defining a different phrase. Keep your eye on the ball. Be ready. Like be tracking it. Uh, I also want to read the sentence after the quote I gave you. After Ellis has um, sent the ball flying a considerable distance and Ernest cries, Capital! Cried Ernest. <laughs> run, run! Two bases at least! <laughs> just think it's just a good quote. <laughs> Can we bring Capital back? Capital. I feel like that's that's fallen out of favor. Absolutely! <laughs> Absolutely do! That and Poppycock. I would be into bringing You know what I haven't heard in a while? Mm. Rob's old-timey voice. That would have been love... an excellent occasion for them, actually. Yeah. That was a missed I mean, opportunity, man. I, You know what? It's probably worth our time for you to reread that in your old-timey voice. Your famed it is, old-timey voice. It is always worth our time. Well, I mean, I have another um, bit of poetry here about baseball it, I could read. I I'd wasn't, love to hear it. I had Ooh. no intention to, but it seems to fit. This is, Well, I'll give you this. Now we have an excerpt from a little pretty pocketbook intended for the amusement of little Master Tommy and pretty Miss Polly. <laughs> the ball once stuck off. Away flies the boy. To the next destined post, and then home with joy. <laughs> that was a reading of a little pretty pocketbook. That's not the first time we've referenced a little pretty pocketbook. <laughs> it's not. Oddly. Because it was a <laughs> my fact for the, was it just the sports episode, or was it the, mm-hmm. do we have a baseball? God, it was a baseball. Remember. We had yeah. a baseball, We have a yeah. baseball-specific episode, and it was in the sort of the origin of baseball being in England and not as Major League Baseball thinks in the United States with Abner Doubleday. Yeah. Great. No, this was the, like your exact, yeah, Doubleday. Yeah. yeah. And this was your exact uh, fact. It was a 1744 <laughs> book. Yeah. And they, they called it baseball. Yeah. Oh. Uh, but right. yeah, so I was, I was reading through this page, which is where they say on the ball comes from in Britain. Um, and so I kind of leave it like that, that. that's the evidence for both sides. Um, there's other thought that like being on the ball meant something in sports like soccer or sports like rugby, where like the player who was kind of the the one mm-hmm. who was in charge, he was on the ball, he was like the most prepared. I've definitely heard that phrase in soccer. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And but there's I, I've found no compelling evidence to believe that it originated right. there. Um, what's really funny is I was talking to people at work last week about this. That is funny. <laughs> yeah, because they stopped what they were doing to talk to me. <laughs> Whoa, capital. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. But so they had no idea where the phrase came from. But one person offered, it must mean like able to react quickly, which is kind of like being aware and alert. Right. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. why, well, yeah. why do you think that? And they're like, well, if you're if you're balancing on a ball. Oh, then, okay, okay. And it's kind of got, like, you can really, like, back create, back engineer the etymology of on the ball. That's so funny because when you were asking us the crossword question, I was thinking a seal was the five letters. Mm. A seal. Oh, yeah. It started with A and I, everything. So I then, have that fleeting thought, too, but the balls go on their noses. Do they go on balls, too? I mean, they're on the balls and there's a ball a in there. No, you're right. The ball is definitely on. <laughs> It's a backward seal. I mean, I mean, I mean <laughs> it's a loose seal. <laughs> I think, I think some, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. I just think that if a if a ball like like if a seal has a ball on its nose from the perspective of the ball, you know what I mean? <laughs> from the from the reference frame of, of the, the ball, ball, the, the seal, seal is, is on the ball. <laughs> the seal is the, upside the ball, down on the ball. The ball is holding up the earth. <laughs> sandwiching sandwiching a, a seal between the ball and the earth. <laughs> sure. 
So then when a human is spinning a basketball on their finger to the ball, the yes. human is just spinning on top of the basketball really right. fast. Yes. Well, that is quite the image. I, Somewhat mitigated by the, the rotation of the earth. Somewhat. I, got, I saw this this week, which is when you take a book that you're reading and you leave it face open down, you're using the earth as your bookmark. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh so good. Uh, have you guys seen like the heinous meme that emerged like two weeks ago of just like food companies advertising their products as alternate bookmarks? Like there's one of like Campbell's soup just spilled onto a book. I could not <laughs> God, stand looking at that. Terrible. Like why? That's like existing? somehow more. And then the Strand retweeted it, and I was like, guys, no. Oh, I feel like that's like, more triggering this. than Fahrenheit 451. Like seeing like a flamethrower engulf books would be someone just spilling soup on a book. Yeah. <laughs> been, and I think it must have something to do with. All of the ingrained fear of, I mean, probably millennials, maybe the generation behind us. <laughs> ingrained. Ingrained? <which, laughs> Paper? Grain? Okay, uh, well, yeah. all right, yeah, fine. Okay, okay. But of just the, of like spilling things on like computers. And mm. I think maybe like, mm. I mean, obviously a book can be ruined, but I feel like if I, you know, I'd be, I think I would react incredibly strongly to knocking over a drink on a book. More so because I'm sort of conditioned to be afraid of that on my laptop. Mm. Yeah, I feel like a laptop mm. is a lot of books. <laughs> That's fair. Project Gutenberg, good stuff. Yeah. yeah, I I feel like for me it's more so that like more so the the permanence of burning a book where it's like it catches on fire and it burns away and you're like oh it's gone okay but like spilling soup onto a book right you're then stuck with the book and the pages are all like greasy and smelly and stuck together and you're like i want to keep reading this but the more that i touch it the more it disintegrates and it just sits there and depresses you so what, until you eventually burn it so what i'm hearing <laughs> <laughs> so let me just just recap emily says you should burn your books not pour soup on them i mean <laughs> it's the lesser of two very evil evils but <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Do you, you ever hear the thing that's uh, tying together evilness and books is um, uh, knowledge is power, power corrupts, study hard, be evil? <laughs> never heard that. Not heard that. That's how I live my life. Did you ever hear about the famous British author who spilled soup all over his books and he yelled, What hath man broth? <laughs> <laughs> Boo! Oh my god. <laughs> All right, so all we have now is our quiz. Um, so this week's quiz is all about, you guessed it, etymology. Yay. What? So you'll have, to, you'll have to identify eight different word origins, origin stories, or things about the creations of words. Um, so good luck, and let us begin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Question one. This word is actually a metathesis or a reordering of an old Norse word, hrosvlar. And it was discovered by none other than J.R.R. Tolkien. Hrosvlar is the old Norse for hras, horse, and vlar, whale. Well, horse, and then the other one was what? Whale, horse whale. Yes. So it would be whale horse is the order. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Or... If you were speaking in Old Norse, like they were at the time. Can, can you, can you, well, is it appropriate to spell them? Is it helpful to spell them? Uh, I don't know that it's super useful. Okay. It's H-R-O-S-S and V-A-L-R. Vlarhorse. Warhorse. Warhorse? Walrus. Yes. It's walrus. <laughs> if you were to say, wow. 
Pick an animal that looks more like a horse whale. <laughs> I think <laughs> just based on the unicorn connection, I would have said Narwhal. You're wrong, Thor. <laughs> All right. Question number two. This financial term is from the old French for a death pledge. Mortgage. That's sure. it. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so literally... I was just thinking French death mort. Mort. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. That's I don't it. actually get how the pledge works yet. Yeah. So, so it's from the old French words mort and gage. Okay. Uh, so is that just I, what pledge is? I got you. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> we wouldn't know, obviously. I don't know. Yeah. I... I <laughs> have no time to check things like dictionaries <laughs> so uh, i believe that it it's like literal death pledge uh any cool. french-speaking listeners please write in um but please don't we won't understand you <laughs> but, <laughs> in english <laughs> but the website online etymology dictionary um says that mortgage got such a depressing you mean the oed <laughs> yes <laughs> that's the one it's a different oed i guess <laughs> Um, but they said that it, the depressing name comes from the fact that, quote, the deal dies either when the debt is paid or when the payment fails. Um, so that um, essentially, like, th- there's a deal that's alive and it's it's until the deal dies. Okay. And so that's what the pledge is, that I will pay you until there's nothing left to be paid or until, like, literally I die or, like, I fail to pay. Right. Like gotcha. bankruptcy or something. Yeah. Question number three. I thought this one was cool, especially given our field. So you might get this quickly. What bodily tissue is from the Latin for little mouse? Because people believe they look like small mice running inside the body. This, I know this one. It's mussels. Yeah. Because think about Whoa. what's the, well, yeah. the yeah. species name for mouse is mus, mus- musculus. musculus. Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and people, for some inexplicable reason, thought that the way that muscle fibers looked under a, a microscope looked like mice. I can tell you, as someone who's seen them, they don't. Yeah. Oh, it, it's huh. it's not the under a microscope. Oh, isn't? No. So this, oh, it's like under the skin. Yeah. Oh, like the bicep is like a little bump. Oh, yeah. I see. And so literally, yeah. it was when people had <laughs> rippling muscles in their back, and it, you're not actually looking at the muscles so much as the tendons. When when you see like someone's back flex and and muscles. And Let me tendons. just do it real quick. So you <laughs> if you want to see. see. <laughs> Ooh, those are rats. Yeah, Damn. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they thought it looked like, because like, uh, the way tendons will move and muscles will flex, looked like small scurrying things under the skin. And so there would be like twitches and small movements. And they said, oh, it looks like small, like tiny mice running around <laughs> under the surface of your skin. Yep. Wow. My apartment is ripped. So <laughs> by, by that logic, can I justify like eating a lot of cheese to build muscles? I guess. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Makes sense to me. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> question number four. Uh, this is a cool one. How old is the word robot? And we can do it one of two ways. You can decide together and you can round your answer. Or you could each make a guess and I'll tell you who's closer. I feel like it's really old. Well, I I think that's the that's what Rob is leading us to with this question because it wouldn't be interesting enough to ask if it was like well, yesterday. Yes. But so there's one thing I know that I want to say it was in like the 1700s. There was a... Um, a robot like chess machine or it was something like that. It was, it was supposed to be a machine that was like, it was a hoax, but it was supposed to be able to play chess. Yeah. It was like an automaton. It, right. Yeah, was that yeah, automaton. the mechanical Turk or something? Maybe. Like that. I think that is what it's called. Yeah. It was something like that. Um, but it like, I think they even played like one of the Louis or something and like mm. beat him at chess, but then like <laughs> didn't 
reveal that there was actually like a grandmaster like sitting under there directing the moves. It was something something <laughs> like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I would guess it's you know maybe Robot was like around then. I see my get my thought is that it was way earlier, like even yeah. to the ancients, but just yeah. had a very different meaning, me, very different meaning that is tangential to what it means nowadays, like the ancient Greeks. I mean, that's always a safe bet. Just because this is an episode about like etymology, everything is Greek and Latin roots. Yeah, and just the sound of it. I don't know. So what, what would be like robot? Maybe like botanical. <laughs> and <laughs> you have to like be like rowing through a sea of grain. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. <laughs> it could be. I, I it, it could. <laughs> is it? It is not. Oh, okay. Man. So, so, yeah, what do we got? So, it's interesting because words like droid have kind of been around for a, a similar amount of time. Automaton's much older. And, like, mm-hmm. really just the, the idea of a machine. Machines themselves, mostly relatively new, but, are like, that's an ancient word, like, machine. You can kind of track roots mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, robot does not derive from like any classical language. And that's actually why it's so confusing. That's why you can't think of a root off the top of your head. Um, so the word robot. Uh, actually, I just want to point out that I did think of two roots. It was rowing like a boat and then bot like bot grain. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, just please give credit where it's due. I guess I should say you won't think of the correct roots <laughs> off the top of your head. <laughs> um, and so the word robot um, is less than 100 years old. So, but we're getting very close. We won't be able to say that for long. In 1920, the Czech playwright Karol Kapek coined the term as part of his play R.U.R., or Rossum's Universal Robots. Hmm. And so the hmm. robots in this play, um, they were kind of mindless uh, workers. They had everything. Uh, who, it says they were mechanical workers who lacked nothing but a soul. Uh, and the word that he derived it from was actually Church Slavonic for robota which mm. is servitude and usually used as like robota like servitude to the lord servitude to god um, but he just translated it as like strict servitude um doing tasks that no humans want to do mm. and mm. this is the first idea of like machines doing these tasks even though at like 1920 we're talking about industrial revolutions like past like right. assembly lines yeah. have happened um, and he's just thinking about like literally dishwashers or like like uh, sewing machines or sorry, like graduate re- students. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Question number five. What food or drink is famously named after Franciscan monks? Cappuccino. That sorry, it is. This is just my oh. round for some reason. Because yeah. they're capuchin friars. Yes, exactly. and, and uh, monkeys too. Yeah, yes. well, the, so the monkeys are named after the or the friars because of just sort of the little like white tuft on their yeah, head. Yeah, that mm-hmm. much that uh, I yeah. knew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so and the coffee has a little white tuft yeah, also. Yeah, exactly. It's, is that it's, is that why? It's quite funny. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, they wore so brown cute. lobes. Uh, sorry. Basically, the friars wore brown robes um, with pointed hoods that hung down their backs, and those hoods were called the capuccio. Oh. Um, so that's where the name for capuchin comes from, for the hood. And so the hooded monkey, the capuchin monkey, has that little tuft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they do so- look somewhat like monks, I guess, but it's actually just being hooded. They look a little bit like monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> they look a little monkey. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for cappuccino, the drink, it actually has to do with just the, co- the, the color of like right. the dark java and mixed with a lighter yeah. color. Yeah. Um, and so both names now cappuccino. Cool. And cappuccino is what you would call like a capuchin monk in Italian. 
I have a really funny feeling Noah's going to know this one, too. What is it? Oh. What fruit is named after testicles? Avocado. <laughs> <laughs> no hesitation. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, the word avocado has a cool... And we also have talked we about have avocados talked about this. Yeah, on, this on the podcast. Times. This is the one I know from our podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, and avocado is a berry, by the way, just to reiterate, which mm-hmm. is a fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, an avocado, uh, the name comes from the Spanish aguacate, which um, came from the Nahatl word yeah. aguacatl, mm-hmm. um, which means testicle. Yeah, which means testicle, yeah. right? Yeah, it's not a... Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, man, you've got some aguacatls on you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Question number seven. What all-American clothing and material are both named Damn. after European cities? Is it denim? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is G- uh, denim and... Uh, is there, you said there's both. Yeah. So what? So one's the material. One's so one is one. It's it's the fabric of neem, de, like denim, right? Mm-hmm. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Maybe so neem the city, right? So it's okay. the fabric of neem, denim. Oh, right? got it's a French oh yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. so yeah, this is another city implicated in this whole denim thing, right? And what? So what do you think of when you think of denim? Jeans, Genoa, Genoa, nice, Genoa, Italy. What? Yeah. I mean, this is like kind of right, we, wildly. I impressive. was going to take a nap. Now I think we should kick you out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to your head. <laughs> yeah. And so, anyway, <laughs> um, denim and jeans are actually not synonymous because right. the fabric from each city was slightly different. And they used to be like drastically different in terms mm-hmm. of who would wear them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the two materials differed because uh, denim was coarser, more durable, of higher quality. Um, it was a toughened cotton corduroy. That they made in Genoa, whereas denim was this whole different material. Mm. Uh, but they've kind of blended now into the same. You have denim jeans. Right. And so you don't actually wear jeans anymore as right. they would have worn in Genoa. That would be like a very uh, kind of different sort of corduroy fabric. Hmm. All right. So we have one question left in this quiz. Question. <laughs> what are we doing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, is this recording? Right, this again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole time. We have one question left. Question number eight. Emily, you have the right to answer okay. first. I'll sit back. We are, yeah, we are excluding shut Noah. Shut up, yeah. I have a funny feeling, based on some of Noah's hobbies lately, that he will also know this one. This is me. This question is another word root question, so I'm going to give you some old roots, and I'm going to ask you to try to trace it back to modern English. Okay. Medieval monks called it aqua vita, meaning life water. What do we call it now? Yeah. And I'll tell you that it was aqua vita, and then it got translated into Gaelic. Okay. Well, annoyingly, aqua vie is an actual thing, but it's not that. Um, uh, frustrating because I definitely know this and have heard this. Would you like to hear the Gaelic? Sure. It's iskbeya. <laughs> Somehow made it worse. This is the time where I would like to interject to say that I don't know the answer. Oh, okay. oh really? So I'm going to play along now. Yeah, okay. for sure. Okay. okay, yes. So, yeah, it's iskbeya. Iskabea. Is it whiskey? It is nice. whiskey. I, that's that's definitely. I was yeah. gonna say like hooch, but I yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't sure if it well, was so that that specific I could see enough. That, I could see that becoming whiskeyish from yeah, that, mm-hmm. but also like um, like in other languages, like aguardiente is like like yeah, like there are there are other languages that have like whiskey as like a water or something, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like yeah. A vigorous water, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and, and aquavit like aquavite is like. A thing for alcohol. I definitely, yeah, aquavit yeah. is a thing. But yeah. then I, I started as soon as you went to like Gaelic, I was like, I don't know. 
So yeah. that's definitely cool. So cool. as the Gaelic became Anglicanized, it went through, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try. My Gaelic is not mm-hmm. great, um, but it went from Iskabea to Uiske to Ige to Uiske to Uiske, which bears the close resemblance to whiskey. Yeah, uh, Uiske. And so um, you can also notice that whiskey is spelled in two ways, K-Y, K-E-Y. Mm-hmm. And they think that the E was added um, to Irish and American whiskeys to say, like, hey, we're not scotch. Because <laughs> scotch is gross. And, like, there was, a, there was a clear divide between, like, scotch and, like, uh, other whiskeys. And they wanted to be like, no, we're the good whiskey. Since when is, like... So this, this, is, this was in a... Is that just, like, racist? Because I honestly... Like, I mean, like, uh, maybe I'm not a connoisseur, but, like, whiskey basically tastes, you know, like, American whiskey essentially tastes like scotch, right? Or I tries, mean, you can, yeah. there's quality swings in both of those whiskey traditions, but essentially it tastes like brown liquor. Mm. <laughs> Hooch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like at one point, scotch or scotch whiskey had a bad reputation globally. And so Irish whiskey was like, yo, don't. Don't pretend that we're the same. We've okay. got an E. Um, okay. the, <laughs> the E stands for quality somehow. <laughs> quality. 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 <laughs> and the other one that I wanted to bring up, this other point, um, in South America, do you know what you say when someone takes a picture? No. Uh, I'm not, I, you'll say it and I'll rip, but I can't think of it now. Yeah, because it's whiskey. Whiskey. <laughs> oh, okay. Cheese. Yeah. yeah. That's cute. And so even though that's not a Spanish or Portuguese word. <laughs> All right. And that's everything. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to check out more, you can go on our Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. Uh, we're on social media. I'm at Sweater Vest SCI. Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. And Emily. At underscore E.M. Costa. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. Theme music is by A.C. Antonelli, and our logo is designed by Mike Sola. Wow, good thing we didn't try to say Beetlejuice again. No! No!